What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back to another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by a online legend. Taylor KB is going to join us to talk about all kinds of stuff. Old school poker. I say old school, of course, meaning just 10, 15 years ago. We're going to talk about a lot of different businesses he's been involved with. Maybe we'll get into poker today and discuss that. And then uh, possibly some CryptoPunks discussion. All that and more coming up in the near future. But before we jump into that, last week we had David Williams on to discuss everything World Series of Poker, including Helmuth's uh, pretty infamous rant, I would say, at this point. So if you haven't gotten the chance to check that out, I'd strongly recommend going over there to see what we had to say about things. And then next week, we're going to be joined by Mark Lamb, CEO of CoinFlex, to discuss is America getting left behind in a lot of the technological department, um, maybe even as well uh, as poker, too. So we'll have a, a, a good conversation about that. Um, one more note before we jump in here to talk with Taylor. I am getting married in a couple of weeks here. So the month of November is going to be an off month for me. I'm going to get married and then I'm going to be doing my honeymoon. So you're not going to see me for a little bit. These last couple of podcasts coming up are going to be the last pods until probably early December. So this is going to be the last couple for me, and then I uh, just want you guys to know we're going to have a scheduled break there. So, okay, with that out of the way, we introduce today's guest, Taylor Kaby, joins the podcast. A man that I think I think anyone that's older school, I say old school now, and it's funny to me because it feels still new school. But uh, of course, founder of Card Runners, founder of Draft Day, uh, I think founder of Hold'em Manager as well, if I'm not mistaken. And then of course, uh, today he's working on Establish the Run as well. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thanks. So good to be here. And uh, I de- question your dedication to the content game, uh, taking a month off to get married. Uh, congrats, but I, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know if I could really convince Caitlin. You know, she puts up with a lot of content, uh, less so these days. But there was a point where there was a YouTube video every day and she had to put up with that. And then if I said, OK, well, here's the thing. I'm going to kick off some new content while we're getting married. Um, she, she, there might not be a wedding. No, I'm just kidding. So so I'm sure she'd be a great sport, but I don't want to have to do that to her. So. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it'll be nice to get a little, little vacation and in, enjoy the moment. Special time as always. So yeah, enjoy, man. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here today. Okay, cool. So let's go ahead and jump into kind of your backstory. I think that maybe some of our our listeners aren't familiar with with your story. I think if you're a newer age poker player, maybe you're someone in your early late 20s, you actually might not have seen Taylor or kind of know his story. I can say from my personal perspective, when I got into poker, you were kind of one of the legends. And I was always hoped to one day kind of get to where you were at, owning a training site, playing high stakes, all that kind of stuff. So I think that my generation all knows you very well, but maybe some of the younger guys aren't, aren't too familiar with you. Yeah. So, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, like I, I was kind of like a version of you like a long time before, you know, you came up and like, Doug, I paved the way, all right, for you to be where you are. I, I'm, Thank I'm you. Playing. But um, no, like, honestly, very kind I of you. So I was a like a high stakes poker player back in like 2003, four, five, six, and, and beyond. And kind of that first era of like kids that, you know, saw Chris Moneymaker, like I was playing before Moneymaker won, you know, and really just worked up from like a small deposit into, you know, a substantial bankroll and playing really at one point in time, I was playing all comers heads up, you know, that was, that was kind of my best game. And it's like I said, like, really, it was kind of like you in that, like, you, you you have a training element, you played a lot of heads up, you had a lot of success. That, that was kind of me on a, I mean, a smaller scale. It was the, the games were smaller, the stakes were smaller for everything at that time. But, um, you know, I started what is or what was, the, it was like the second actual training site, but it was the first one that I would say is credible. Uh, you know, it was like really, really high quality um, content from people who are actually winning. Um 
just started it from nothing when I was in college and totally we can get into it, but like that, that's kind of my backstory. And that's how I got started. And then I just, it's led to a career in gambling and, you know, gambling related like niche businesses. Right. Of course you're talking about card runners, which I think absolutely paved the way for basically all of the training sites sort of to come after that. You say the card runners was the second site, but the first legitimate site, what, what was the first site that you had heard of before, before card runners that was doing training online? Yeah, there was a site called Real Poker Training, and I, I really should have not said Cardinals was the only le- the first legitimate one because there was some legitimacy, but it was not to the same level of like the best players like releasing videos and stuff like really really good players. It was guys that were like winning in those games, but like this was two thousand and four. You know, I mean, it didn't take a lot to to be winning. So um, realpokertraining.com was and it was more tournament focused, whereas Cardinals kind of kind of covered everything. Yeah, the, the card runners model is interesting to me. And actually with Upswing, we we kind of deviated from what you guys had done because I think that you guys had started this training program where you sign up and then there's a long list of pros and then every day there's one or two videos that come out uh, from those pros. And you would usually have your top guys would make less of those videos and you'd release those and that would kind of be your marketing material. And then you would sort of have more filler videos that would come out from other guys that might be mid or high stakes pros. Um, or I mean, honestly, I was one of the pros on card runners. I, ma- I made a video back in the day for when I was playing small stakes. So I know that the people couldn't have been that good if I was playing small stakes and making videos, but, um, that, that model became the absolute standard. And I think real, realistically until I want to say upswing came along and, and sort of changed the, the formatting into kind of more of a course format that really became the standard that everyone else looked to, to kind of emulate. I think most, most of Phil Helmy or Phil Helmuth got saying his name too much lately phil galfon's sites that he's run along the way have have followed that model as well yeah and and like i should be really clear like that model just evolved from the initial idea was just myself and my business partner andrew wiggins and a couple of other people that we were just like friend buddies with putting out videos like four three or four guys you know and like what it became was you know dozens of people creating content and there wasn't, I'm not saying there wasn't thought that was put into it, but like this was before, like, you know, YouTube was just getting started when we started card runners. Like it was literally like within like a few months of each other. So like, this wasn't something where we had some grand vision. It was like college kids that I thought I would get a job after I graduated college. So I, I wanted to, you know, have something to fall back on. Like, you know, like I'd be like, Hey, I wasn't just playing poker online. I was doing a business, you know? And like that, that's real. Like, cause at the time, people didn't respect online poker. Like nowadays, you know, not everyone likes it, but like people at least can understand there are people that are very successful and do well at it and it takes skill, you know? And, and that wasn't really the case. So um, I totally think I've learned a lot, you know, your model I think makes a lot more sense now, especially in today's era where like, well, so the best way I would say summarize this is like the people that are creating the content, there has to be like an equitable distribution of, the value everyone is creating, they have to be paid appropriately for it. And like, ultimately, you know, filler content, first of all, like isn't great for anyone in, in a lot of ways. It's just, it's, it's people aren't going to get paid a lot. It's probably not worth some people's time. The users don't like it, but then on the high end, you have the best players creating videos. They have to be compensated for like not only their time, but also the effect that it has on their future earnings potentially. And I think I don't know exactly how you structure things, but I think the course format and sort of some more nuance can, can really speak to, to to making it more equitable for everybody. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The upswing model has been we have a subscription that's sort of like what you guys had at Card Runners, 
uh, where it's an A to Z course and it's kind of aimed more at small to mid stakes players. And then we get high stakes guys to come in and do one off courses in different areas. Um, you know, so we have more specifically geared kind of advanced tier courses that that are again usually start to finish, but done by one guy. What that's kind of allowed us to do is is pay them, you know, a, a pretty reasonable size of the revenue of those courses, and so we can bring in good players because we can say, hey, these are our past courses; they've done really well. Um, you know, a lot of their courses that we sold upswing have done. I mean, the average probably five hundred k revenue. Maybe some do seven fifty or a million, um, and then. Some of the mixed games ones, for example, don't do quite as well. But uh, the point is, we can say, hey, this is going to be a very safe bet. We can give you a, a good-sized chunk of the revenue. Come make this course with us. And I think that, that that lets us get guys that, you know, otherwise, it's just not going to be worth it to them because the hourly is just not good. And they also kind of give up some of their strategy. It's a little different nowadays because people are so solver-based. I, I think the, the best example is Nick Petrangelo. He does uh, our online, uh, or, sorry, our tournament course. And then he also is in the process of creating a live course for us. He's just so good and so balanced that he doesn't have to be as worried about, oh, I'm giving away the way that I play here, which is optimal. Uh, you can't really beat optimal, right? So for someone like that, you can pay him much more than another site would be able to give him, obviously, revenue share. And then uh, he's really good. So um, everyone kind of wins there. And, and that was sort of the baseline for us. What, what was what was Carboner's peak membership like? Because I feel like when I was when I was watching you guys, it was huge. Carboner's was everywhere. I think you guys, you had a deal with Full Tilt at some point, right? kind of remember something like that yeah so the peak membership was probably somewhere between like 13 to fourteen thousand active subs and and we were like way undercharging like we had like a, a sign up fee which was like a hundred bucks and i think it was like 30 bucks a month at, at its peak we probably could have doubled the price like and and like lost not a substantial part of subscriber subscribers at that point so it was just like I mean, it sounds so dumb looking back because like we made so many bad decisions, like with hindsight, that would be just so obvious. And I, and I honestly think if, if we had kept going and I will talk about what I got into, you know, eventually, but I think it would have evolved into something pretty similar to what upswing is today. Um, because it was, it was clear to me that these, there was like friction between, you know, how to run the business, how to make it equitable for people. Also, you know, it's it's just not it's just not as straightforward to like figure this all out on the fly as it is when you have you know the the the, the ability to come in new to the market, which I think is what you guys and some other people did. But um, yeah, we had a partnership with Full Tilt, which was super innovative at the time. I mean, like this is like people that weren't playing poker back then don't don't know that online players were not like respected and looked up to by like the broader poker community. Like online, they were respected on like forums, things like that. But like you know, everybody looked at like Phil Helmuth and like a bunch of guys like that. It's like, those are the guys who were like, man, like they're the best. And like full tilt to their credit, like was like, Hey, these guys are clearly, they don't have respect from like the mainstream community, but like the online community respects them. So we got like red pro deals with, I don't know, maybe a, a, 10 guys or so that were associated with card runners. And like, it promoted us, we promoted them, you know, setting aside all the like scam stuff about with full tilt and black Friday. Like it was, it was pretty good, you know, but um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about that more, but yeah, it was, it was a really interesting partnership. It's not, nice to know that some things never change. You know, the sun rises, people pay taxes, they die. And uh, Phil Helm is still the best at poker, no matter what year it is, apparently still winning bracelets and uh, causing a stir despite what year it is. Uh, you brought up Andrew Wiggins. It's funny. I saw an A. Jones tweet talking about Andrew Wiggins, and I realized that I thought he was talking about the basketball player, and he was talking about the person or something, something like that. And I, and I, I realized I hadn't thought about Andrew Wiggins in so many years. Uh, 
what what's he up to these days? Because I, I think you guys both started card runners together, right? Yeah, we've actually been working together the, the entire time, like literally nice. for, since 2005. So he is my um, business partner at Establish the Run um, today, one, one of my business partners. And we also started draft day together, which I think we're going to talk about. And um, he has been playing DFS professionally f- since like 2014. Um, so, you know, kind of a lot of the same stuff I've been doing. Gotcha. What What, what is so... I guess actually, let's just focus on the poker here first. I, I kind of want to seg- section this off a little bit for some of our listeners. I know we have a lot of different audiences in the mix here. I want to kind of focus on the poker stuff first. Then we can talk about some of the DFS stuff. And then I think I'd like to end with, with a bunch of different crypto conversation. Um, but I want to kind of go back to talking about what poker was like back in the day. Because I think even when I was coming up, I graduated high school in 2007. And that was really when I started to play. You, you were involved a few years even before that. How what was poker like back in the day in 2003 online? Uh, what was that era like? And then just just talk about your experiences there. Maybe even some fun stories if you can think of any. Yeah, so um, it was the true wild wild west. I mean, like just getting to get your money online was challenging. I was in college, like I didn't have online banking. Okay, so like I couldn't, you know, there was no online, or at least maybe it existed, but I I didn't have it. So like I had to actually like go into the bank. convince them that I was actually associated with this like online wallet, which is not teller. People probably know what that is. Maybe they don't, I don't even know if it exists anymore, but um, you know, and like that was just to get your money online, you know, cause like I I didn't have a credit card or like it didn't work or something. And like, so that's just like step one, like just getting in there was hard. There was no information whatsoever. So, you know, forget about solvers or software. It was like, just knowing like the hand rankings and like the equities, there's like, like shitty sites that you could look up, like what hands would win versus others. And like, that was like pretty, like you're doing pretty well. If you, if you like knew about that, you know, and there was no social media. Okay. No YouTube, nothing like that. So it's like, okay, everybody's just going to sign up for this thing that like, we all know we're doing this because we saw poker on ESPN. And like, we all are like, Oh shit. Like I want to be like the next, you know, whoever we saw on ESPN. It's like this, it's like this new video game almost that like, think back to like old school video games. And like, you didn't have anything other than like, you just plugged it in and you turned it on and you tried to figure it out. Like there was no, nothing else. And and that's kind of the environment. And it was super, you know, the, the upshot is that there were just tons of people that had no clue, but like you had to really figure out how to, you know, what games to play, what were the rules of the games? Like a sit and go was like a totally new thing that like nobody had ever heard of outside of online poker, or at least I certainly hadn't heard of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I started playing $5 sit and goes heads up. Cause I just liked the action. And then over the course of like probably two years, like two years later, I was playing like 5,100 10K no limit heads up. And like, that was a wild ride. You know I mean? Like, like and and like the variance wasn't even that bad because like the skill gap was just so wide between like someone like me who was at the top and then like the average player that like it wasn't even that stressful it was just like it was just like a a ride up you know it was it was awesome um i'll say a couple other things um poker tracker like was was existed at that point in time but like you didn't even know if you could trust the software. You didn't, it didn't, the HUD was not tied to it. Like you had to download a separate product. Um, poker, poker grapher, right? Poker grapher. That was another one. I, I totally forgot about that. But like there was poker tracker, there was poker ace HUD, which was tied into poker tracker. 
and then uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Poker Grapher must have been so you could like actually see the, the the graph of the results. But like, I remember like downloading this stuff and being like, like, is this a scam? Like, you know, like, am I like, like, am I getting a virus on my computer? Like, can like someone see my whole cards? I mean, it was like that crazy. And and then like, ju- so just like being willing to try that stuff out and like be smart enough to like not get scammed, which is a huge problem. That was the game. And and, and like, I would call that like 2003 to like 2005 it started to get a little more like forums became like a bigger deal around that time. Like pocket fives and two plus two, obviously were the two big ones that I used. And then you could start to say, okay, like what is going on here? You know, like, can someone help me like, like figure out what, like this question I have, you know, and like that, that, that started expediting the, 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 the strategy and the skill. And then like the training sites really, I think kind of, kind of poured gas on that. Totally. Definitely agree with that for people to get an idea of what the average player was like in 2003, 2005, maybe even 2007 you absolutely have to go online and check out the tough fish videos because if you have not seen tough fish you you are missing out on a gold mine of that that really uh that captures the essence of the golden age of poker i think almost in its entirety uh the tough fish videos do uh definitely have to check those out uh talking about the forum oh sorry go i want to say one thing there are two things on tough fish number one he was probably a better than average player uh, at the time. So like, just keep that in mind. Um, and then two, he actually came from the Cardrunners forums. Like he was a Cardrunners member. Oh, nobody knows this, but like he was, he was just recording his screen, posting videos on our private forum. Like, so people could like, like review his play and give him some advice. And like someone messaged me and they were just like, dude, you got to see this guy. Like he was just going on massive tilt because like empire maker and like other guys were just like beating his ass. And like, I don't know. It was, it was really, you just got to watch the videos if you haven't seen them, but like it got, then it got on YouTube or I don't know how it got out, but like, I was like, because I had like a few phone calls with the guy because we were like thinking about doing some like content on card runners. And like, I was just like, man, like this is awesome. You know? And like, everybody knows about it now. Yeah. That those, those videos were legendary. Absolutely legendary. I can't even think of anyone that's close to that. The only person sort of in my era of heads up that i can think of is skunk den or den of skunk on youtube and he would basically troll all the other heads up regs but uh nothing even remotely close to the to the types of tilt that were contained in the tough fish videos i heard a rumor at some point that he'd passed away right is that is that true or i heard that too but i i don't know yeah okay well hopefully he's still yelling at people for doing dumb things uh somewhere wherever he is today um but yeah, so so talking about uh, poker during that era, so I started playing in 2007. I started with a lot of home game type small stake stuff and then started to play more online. So by the time I got involved, people had kind of already had the big run up to the high stakes. Rail Heaven started not long after I started to play. And I think that Limit Hold'em had, had kind of gotten killed off, or at least it was dying. Was Limit Hold'em the game of choice for a lot of people when you were coming up or had it already sort of transitioned over to no Limit Hold'em? definitely it was popular I, I didn't even give it a second thought because i was just like this is way more boring than no limit which is what i watch on tv but um it was quite popular when i started yeah right also the capacity for edge when people are terrible seems better it's nice when everyone can when someone can lose every dollar they have instead of just you know a small fraction of their dollars yeah i, I will say this i got my first actual start on online poker called on a site called pokerroom.com because i think it was the first room it was if you google poker online poker like it came up I was playing limit hold'em free rolls 
Like I had to get, I was like 18. I had to get up at like 7 a.m. to register. And I played limit hold and free rolls. Cause I, like I said, I couldn't get money out of the site. So I was just like figuring out how to, tr- I wanted to get money and I would get up every day, register and then play. And eventually I won a little bit of money and that's how I actually got started. But um, you know, obviously I figured out the money part later, but that, that's just how crazy it was. It was literally limit hold'em, and I hated it. I just, it was my only choice. I played a, a very large number of free rolls with one of my best buddies. Uh, it's actually the best man at my wedding. So we're still very good friends. And uh, when we were in high school, we would fire up and play every free roll on every site to try and get some bankroll going. And once in a while, someone would, would bank one or two dollars. And then we hit the one cent, two cent tables. And, and that felt like high stakes. Cause if you, if you lost that, you were, you were sending packing right back <laughs> to the free rolls. And uh, I never, I never managed to make any of those work out. I eventually had to start depositing and, lost a few deposits before I kind of had things click for me. Um, what, so kind of transitioning into where poker is, has been heading over the last, you know, five, 10 years, particularly online. What are your thoughts on, on online poker as it is, as it is today? And do you think that there is a longevity there or, or should players be concerned with the games they're playing and being fair and the prevalence of bots and all of those types of things? You know, I, I think you should always be concerned. Like, I, I is, is the short answer that I, I think that like it's on the technology is obviously only going to get better, and like people are going to get, you know, computers are going to get better. That's just going to happen. But you know, I think there is just like an underlying demand to play poker, and, and like I, I don't really see that going away, especially live poker. Um, and and I think the elf or the, the the million dollar question is just regulation in the U.S. I mean. The, the the road is paved for poker to be regulated. It's already legal in a few states, and there's you know mu- like the Wire Act issues are kind of behind us, from what I can tell. Um, I think that and uh, with Adelson, you know, not being around anymore, he was like a huge force in, in fighting against any sort of online gambling expansion. And I feel like there's a chance that what we're seeing with sports betting right now, where every freaking ad on TV is for sports betting, if you live in a state that has it, legal sports betting. I'm not saying poker will be as impactful as that, but once the marketing dollars get behind it and people and the common man feels like, Hey, I can get a fair game. You know, I'm already betting sports on these sites. There's a big prize pool. All this stuff comes back. And this is, I mean, this is a U.S. centric view to it. Obviously there's a lot more than that out there, but, but I do think there's actually some room for optimism um, overall. Well, the most, yeah, the most important thing here is that we get access to the, liquidity of all player pools throughout different states because yes i know you can play in nevada and you can play in new jersey and you can play in what delaware and pennsylvania launched a year or two ago i'm not even sure if it's really going there or not yet but when you're just in your state or maybe in your pact of two or three states it doesn't really give you enough liquidity to have a lot of great higher stakes games of course there's exceptions of course there can be you know during the world series of poker i assume it's much better online all those kinds of things but there is sort of an uh, exponential effect when you add in all these liquidity pools together where you hit this critical mass. Now games run it because games are running where people play and because when people are playing more games run and it kind of snowballs. And I think you, I think we really kind of need to hit that in order for online poker to come back in, in a big way. Do, do you think that's going to happen eventually here or do you think that's the way things are the way things are headed? I do. I, I would definitely bet on that happening um, just just based off of slightly gut instinct, but, but also just having talked to some people that are kind of a little more connected behind the scenes than I am. I, I think like long term, like, you know, five years or so from now, I would, I feel pretty confident saying that there'll be, you know, compacts between States and it will be, maybe it's not 50 States. Maybe it's like 20 or 30 or something like that or, or, or 20. I don't know. So, so it doesn't have to be necessarily 30. The second poker boom, the illustrious white whale, 
of the second poker room that people have been talking about for for or the white buffalo sorry white buffalo right yeah you know i just want to say too that's you should probably read that as pretty bullish coming from me because i i was always like so bearish on like poker after black friday and maybe we'll go into more you know my getting out of poker and stuff but like i just didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel for poker and like it, it just i think there's a lot of trends going against poker too i mean i mean like it is a hard game to really compete in and, and to like get to be competitive, especially online. If you're playing live in a soft game, like anybody can, can have a good time. But like, I just think that is that dynamic is always going to be there. And I think that's going to be challenging, even, even with like an influx of rec players and, you know, people feeling comfortable about not getting robbed, all that stuff. I, there's still going to be thousands of really sophisticated players that are going to be like chomping at the bit to, to, you know, play as many tables as they can to, to capitalize. So I'm trying to temper. I, I don't think it's going to be this thing where like anybody can go back and just print money if they know what they're doing. But I do think it's like, there'll be maybe a more of a little bit of a middle ground from where it is right now. When I look at the overall poker playing population after black Friday for about five, six, seven years, the average amount of people playing poker seemed to consistently decrease. And then I started to flatline something like 2015, 2016. Uh, it no longer was decreasing, but it was kind of steady. So I'm not too worried about the longevity of poker, I guess, in the short to midterm uh, time range. I am very worried about the lack of young people in poker. And I've said this in this podcast before, but I can see the age range of people that watch my podcast, who watch my poker content. I can see all the stats. And there are, there are very, very few young people that watch. There are people in their mid-20s. There are people in their late 20s. There's a few people in their early 20s, if you're listening right now, and I'm sure some of you guys are, are that young, but it's primarily people that are around my age and up to about 10, 15 years older, and then people that are around five, 10 years younger. And it's very consistently like that with almost no young people. So a worry that I have is that we're looking at a population of players that are primarily aging. Whereas when I got into the game, every college had home games. Every, I mean, all the high schools had home games. I learned about poker in a high school home game, people playing sit and goes and cash games and this, that, and the other. And now I think that really probably Black Friday, but maybe just trends in general, but but I, I really do think Black Friday, we don't have that sort of young age of player coming up that sort of needs to, at some point, take the reins and become the, the primary, primary poker playing generation. I kind of feel like we've lost that. And I also want to make one more, one more point there, which is I think that when I was coming up in poker, there were a lot of really smart guys that were playing poker. Because it was viewed sort of like what you were saying earlier, it was, view, it was starting to become viewed more in a positive light and people knew that it was a game of skill. And nowadays, I think it's kind of gone back the other way a little bit where because it's illegal at the national level, people view it as bad and illegal and it's not getting the best and the brightest minds. And then on top of it, if you're an American, you don't get to you know train versus the people in the rest of the world who are, to be honest, frankly much more skilled because let's say that you're from scandinavia you have to play on poker stars you're just simply going to be better if you survive in that ecosystem than if you play on new jersey's world series of poker no offense to the new jersey regs i'm sure you guys are good i'm sure you actually i play a lot of you guys you're not good a lot of really bad heads up players in new jersey i practiced last year um yeah those games are pretty soft so uh, but yeah you're not going to be as good as the poker stars regs yeah i mean there's no doubt about that i mean i would just say too at a macro level if you are the best and the brightest of the next generation, call, call it be you're 15 to, I don't know, 25 years old, somewhere in that range. I don't think poker is where you should probably be spending your time. I mean, like there's just like, let's just 
let's just say it like there's way more opportunity in crypto right now as, as, as a starting point. But I mean, in the U.S. in the past, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years, there was more opportunity in DFS some years. This is just like gambling. You know, there's so much opportunity in technology, you know, whereas I just think like when I, I know when I was in college, it was like the big jobs were like accounting and finance and people want everyone wanted to be a hedge fund manager. And like it started to get more competitive, obviously, but like that was what the like talented people were doing. And then like the weirdos were doing like tech stuff. And it turned out that was actually the right decision. If you were getting into tech in like, Oh, you know, three to any time in the last 20 years, yeah, you just smash poker. What, but poker was actually like viewed as, as a legitimately good opportunity. If you really knew what you were doing, because you can make, you know, substantial money while being young and relatively unskilled. So all that is to say that, like, I don't think it's so. I, I don't know if I agree that Black Friday itself was it. I mean, I, it was because certainly it, it kneecapped the industry and made it less lucrative, and then made it less of a thing for like you know bright people to go into. But I also just think there's other trends like that are far more impactful, like tech and crypto, and that like just created these opportunities that really dwarf the opportunity in poker. Getting into tech has been pretty profitable basically anytime ever, so that has never been bad for people. And crypto, I would say the same. I think both of those have been awesome industries for people to get involved in. Um, obviously, crypto uh, hasn't been going on for that long, but we start, we just see the valuations that things have, have had run up. And it is uh, pretty incredible what, what we've seen happen there. One more thing on poker. But I, I do want to talk about some DFS stuff. Well, I, I really think poker, and maybe less so today, but just in general, still at least somewhat, is a great way to go from having, let's just say, 1000 or $2,000 to having a million but it's a really bad way to try and scale after that because the games you're going to have to play in are either going to be incredibly difficult and you're not going to be good enough or they're going to be incredibly difficult and you have a small win rate either way it's not great or you have to get to into schmoozing with billionaires in private games and pretending to be people's friends so you know i i just don't think that's a life either of those options are a life that you really want to have going from one to ten million or twenty million or what what after that point, I think that the people that you can meet in tech and crypto um, and just investing in general are going to be much more fun roads to go down as you try and build your wealth from that point forward. But I still do think poker is a, is a great place for people to go from having a very small amount of money, finding good games, probably in live poker, possibly online in some spots um, and building your bankroll. Uh, I do think that, that that is a valuable journey for people to go on because it teaches you the so many different good things, bankroll management, discipline critical thinking, all kinds of great, great things for, that people should have and learn. Um, and you're not going to have a lot of great opportunities to make money out of the gate anyway. So I, I do think that the, I, I generally speaking agree with you, but I think when you're really young, having a poker, a small poker stint on the side is, is still pretty good. Yeah. Um, one thing on that, I, I completely agree with that. Like generally speaking, um, also let's not forget that like, it's fun to play poker, you know? And like when you're, you know, 18, 20, 22, you, you, you can fire up some tables online, you go to the casino, like that, that's cool. You know, it's, it is a lot of fun and like, you can do it profitably, even if it's not 1k to like a million, it could be like, you know, 1k to like 20k over the course of a couple of years. And you're still going to school, you're still working a job or whatever it is that, that that's cool. And then the other thing I would say too, on the whole, I, I've heard your, some of your takes on, on like networking and the high stakes games and and don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of bullshit in it. Like it, the, the, the semi-private games at casinos, that, that sucks to me. And, but, but like when the game's supposed to be public, but it's not actually public, 
But like, that's just another, like, I realized this a long, long time ago. It was part of the reason why I got out of poker was just like, I didn't want to play that game. Like I didn't want to play the game where I had to just sort of cater to the right people. And it's not my, necessarily my strongest uh, skill set. Um, but I think it's a valid skill, you know? And I think it's like something that if you're like pretty analytical, you're really outgoing, people like being around you. I mean, we don't have to name guys that can do this, but there's people that are successful in poker that just kind of have this. And like, I think there's a real opportunity just to, just to kind of be in every, every like local poker environment has those guys that are just sort of like, you know, they're always in the get right games and they know the right people. And, and moreover, I think you can use that, that to build beyond poker. I mean, you don't have to just stay grinding these like private games forever. You can actually network with super successful people. And I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't downplay that because I think that like at the end of the day, your network can just be so valuable. And like, if, if I was coming in, I'd be thinking about that. Networking has a lot of value and I, I've definitely shot myself in the foot at points by not taking the opportunities that I've had to network better. But then I look at my life today and I still don't take those opportunities because I don't particularly love a lot of force interactions where I'm just trying to network and gain value. Um, I don't, I don't really want that many new friends and I'm not trying to use people to make money. I, I, I'm not trying to get too jaded here. It's always good to make new friends guys. Don't want to get too jaded here on the podcast. But uh, I try to pick my spots carefully. I'll just leave it at that. So oh, you're not old enough to be this, this jaded. I'm, I'm, I don't like this. I just feel like I've gone through so much at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I am too jaded. I'm, I'm getting married. Probably going to try and have kids. Settle down. I go to, I go to bed at ten o'clock at night. I wake up in the morning and enjoy a coffee and a walk. That's a great morning for me. You're Times have changed. Simple man. Times have changed since I was yeah nineteen years old, twenty years old, and you wake up and you play fifteen hours of poker, whenever that is. Then you just crash, and then you wake up whenever, and you just do it over and over again. Although I I, I do look back on those times very fondly, and and I had a great time, and and I'm, I'm very thankful for poker, which I think kind of gets lost along the wayside that it's given me really everything I have. So uh, I I have to be very thankful for that, and, and I am very thankful for that opportunity. What was the point when you knew that you we're going to step outside poker or you need to step outside poker or you were, you were done with poker. What, what kind of happened where you realized that it was time for you to, to move on to other pursuits? Yeah, it, it just, it was clear to me that I would say there was two phases. The, the first was just simply that card runners was taking up more of my time and I liked it more than I did actually playing poker. And that was probably in like 2007 or so. I realized that maybe eight. And, and then secondly, I just, card runners got to a point where it was sort of like, it was, we had a lot of people working on the business. It was not taking up as much of my time. So I was just looking for a new challenge. And I had heard about daily fantasy. I had invested in like an early daily fantasy site. Um, and I was like, man, I really think daily fantasy could be, this was like 2009 or 2010. And I really thought daily fantasy could be like the next poker. And, and like, I've always had a passion for fantasy sports, fantasy football in particular. And it just kind of was in my mind, obvious that like, this is going to be big. And, and like, it's crazy that it actually became what it was. Cause I, I, like, I didn't expect it to be that big, but like, once I was like, well, fuck, like I'm going to, I don't sorry, I probably shouldn't swear. Sorry. <laughs> you can, you can absolutely fucking swear on here. There's okay. no, no issue um, with that at all. Once I was like, man, like we should just do this and like start a, a daily fantasy site because there was like nothing out there. Like FanDuel was like the only like sort of legitimate site. Like, I kind of was just like, well, this is too much. This is too big of an opportunity and way too much work to be like focusing on poker. So I just kind of went 
followed my, my passion and my interests. And, you know, it's really hard to say if that was the right decision because drafting didn't really end up working out. But like, uh, like you said, you have a lot of like, you know, gratitude for poker. It kind of got you to where you are. Like that's the same way I feel about poker. And like, I've always just followed the decisions that I thought were right for me at the time and like not looked back. So for me, it just felt like it was time to try something else. Why don't you, why don't you talk a little, a little bit about draft day? I think that I imagine most of the viewers or listeners haven't, haven't heard that story. So why don't you t- talk about that story? Yeah. And I'll make it quick. Cause I know not everyone's interested in DFS here, but like the, the bottom line was, is that it was one of the first DFS sites. Nobody knew what DFS was. It was super, super small industry. 2011, we got it off the ground. We started it building in 2010. Um, we just tried to build a site that could offer DFS games and, and make it as big as we could. And like, we got to the point where we are the third or the fourth biggest DFS site by like 2013. At this time there was like dozens of sites, but like, you know, we were one of the biggest sites and had a, what I thought was a really good product. Like a lot of people, we, we had traction, like we, there was people using the site and everything. Um, but as people probably know now, DraftKings and FanDuel just like absolutely blew everybody out of the water raised hundreds of millions into the billions of dollars, television commercials on every channel, like, you know, crazy stuff. And we ended up selling the business in 2014, just because it was really clear to me that we weren't going to be winners. Um, So it was kind of just like a, just like a fold and, and and move on type of thing. The DFS industry is interesting too, because there's just been this arms race where everyone's just spending as much as they possibly can and isn't even profitable. I, at least that was the case a year or two ago. I'm not up to date on this. Maybe that's changed, but people are just piling money in to try and take market share without really making that much money at this point. And I think that that when that's going on, it really blows a lot of the smaller businesses out of the water because you can't, not everyone can afford to just lose money indefinitely. At some point, you need to make money, and for smaller businesses, typically, you're not able to not able to do that. Was that writing sort of on the wall for you guys, or or was it was it not really part of the, the thought process? Well, not in 2010 when we were starting it because I, the business just didn't, the industry just did not look that way. And like I was going off of what I saw in poker, which was for a time there was kind of a number of sites that were pretty were thriving. At least from the outside, it seemed like they were all thriving. And I I just wasn't that sophisticated too. Like I mean, I was mid twenties or so at the time and just kind of tried to figure everything out on my own. Um, DFS also, it wasn't, so it wasn't always that way. Like when DraftKings in particular was the site that just like absolutely took things to another level by raising more money than anybody could possibly imagine what was possible and then just blowing it into the market. And it, it was smart. Like that, like that was the right decision. That was their only real chance to stand out. And it honestly, I think they got lucky in a lot of ways because the whole PASPA reveal repeal, which made sports betting legal made their business like massive because they can offer sports betting now and they have a huge user base. But like, I'm pretty confident they didn't see that coming just, just based off of what was going on in the industry when we all were running these sites. And um, yeah, the other thing I should say on DFS too, is it's not a good business model as a standalone business, unless you have that scale of like millions of users you got to pay for data feeds, engineers. It's not like sports betting where you can open up a book and like it can be profitable quickly. Um, no one was making any money. And, and But the, the good side of this is that once you have these customers, they're also the same customers that want to bet on sports. They want to play poker. They want to gamble in the casino. So you just use it as a wedge to build an audience and, and you can really do well. And that's what DraftKings and FanDuel did. It's weird about DFS because I like gambling. I like poker, obviously. I 
love sports. I watch sports all the time and lineup of players. And I don't like having conflicting sweats. So for the last six or seven years, most weekends during NFL season, I'll flip the whole slate in red zone and I'll just sit down and watch the seven hours. Um, Lately, that's been an expensive hobby. But I've been doing that for many years, and I don't want to have to be rooting against my team because there's a guy on my team that, you know, or on the other team that I need to get a certain amount of yards. I don't want to have the conflicting sweat aspect. So I've never really gotten involved, but I, I know a lot of people that that really do enjoy DFS, and and certainly there's a lot of skill there. Um, do, do you play DFS, or were you really kind of looking at it more from the business side? Yeah, so I, I do play DFS today, and and I was not at all looking at it from the player side when I started. It was just like a market opportunity. I look, it, it was. This is a total tangent, but I was lo- I was watching your pod uh, with Brian Pellegrino uh, a couple weeks ago or whatever, and, and he was talking about how for poker for him it was about the challenge and like I wa- he wanted to battle guys heads up and like you know just try to play the best and be the best. Like that that was never me. Like I, I was just like I want to make some money. You know, and like, and, and like poker was fun for me. Like, don't get me wrong. I liked it, but like, it was, it was very pragmatic. Like I, I, or I'm pragmatic. I just want to make money. If it's a good opportunity, I'll take it. It's not to say I don't have passion about things I participate in, but like DFS was like, Hey, this could be, this could be big, you know? And like, once I realized that like, that was not like the right, you know, market for me at the time I, I sold, we sold the business and I played DFS for, I guess you could call it for a living. I mean, it wasn't like the only thing I did, but like I was very, very, very into DFS from like 2014 to, I don't know, three, three years ago, like, like, like spending significant amounts of my time on it, betting significant amounts of money. Like I'm very, very well versed in how it goes to play, to play for a living. So happy to talk about it. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, go for it. I, I really, really like the idea of trying to predict how the players are going to do the conflicting sweats thing doesn't really bug me. I mean, I just kind of <laughs> root for my team on one side of my brain and root for my money on the other. And, and like, that's kind of okay. I, I'm a little weird, but like, um, you know, I, it, it really, so like, I'll just get into it in 2014. That was the reason why, like, like I, I got into it because I knew how much money FanDuel and DraftKings were, were spending. And I, once we sold draft day, I was just like, well, this is obviously going to be way bigger because these guys are just like crushing it. So I just started playing and like, you know, just using like a projection of data to, to, and building like a very crude projection model, even if it was just using somebody else's model, that was enough to win, like for sure. And like, nobody was doing that in 2014. A couple of years later, everybody's using projections. You got to be a little more sophisticated. There's game theory, there's software tools. You just got to be smart. You got to figure it out. And like, and like that, that was, I, I don't know. I was able to do it and like, I did well, um, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something I felt like I was going to do forever. Right. What, what are the, what are the top DFS guys li- like today? How much money are the, the, the best regs able to win in that, in that ecosystem? I would say if I had to guess like today, like EV wise, like maybe two, three, four million a year. Like oh, if, wow. if I had to guess, I mean, this is like, there's not a lot of guys doing that, but like best of the best. And, and like, these guys are going way beyond like there it, it's, it reminds me of like what I know about poker where there's just a lot behind the scenes of, you know, solvers and, and simulations and things like that. If you want to get to be the best of the best at DFS, like these guys are going way, way beyond just like, here's the projection of the player. You know, you've got to, you've got to actually simulate what's happening in games. 
you've got to and, and be able to do that well. You know, I mean, that, that's not easy right. just to like actually predict like if like certain player, you actually have to have a, full, a model that's running out the entire like slate of games accurately. And I know there's people trying to do stuff like that that are it's like commercially available software, but like it's not that good, you know, compared to like you got to be much better. And um, yeah, so like, but, but like realistically, and that's the thing I like about DFS even to this day, realistically, if you like it, it's a fun hobby. You can still be plus EV just buying, like maybe we'll talk about establish the run, what I'm using, doing or, or other stuff, but you can buy projections, study, work at it and make like, you know, we'll call it a three to 5% ROI. Like, like it's reasonable. And that's like, a you know, decent stakes. I'm not, not the highest stakes, but like at small stakes, absolutely. You can do better than that. And like, if you like sports, you like fantasy sports. I mean, it seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what, what, why don't we go ahead and jump into establish the run and talk about what you're up to these days? Yeah. So like the establish the run is basically like card runners, but just for fantasy football, fantasy basketball, DFS. And in our goal is just to create like the highest quality content we can for people, like people that are in poker, get it. If they've seen, you know, sites like upswing, like it's actually people that know what they're doing, like teaching, you know, it's not just like bullshit, which is like what most stuff is online when, when they're trying to like sell information. Um, and, you know, we're doing stuff for season long fantasy football, DFS, we're doing prop betting, um, stuff now. And, you know, we've got really talented people that either are building projection models or analyzing, doing analysis. There's a lot of like nuance in fantasy sports. Like, it's not just like, you know, you can't just look at the data, like where, whereas like in poker, I think the data is like a little more just like, explanatory. Can you, can you give an example of that? Yeah. So like, for example, like in football, you're dealing with small sample sizes. You're dealing with like injuries and coach speak, like, you know, certain, there's a, there's a thing where like guys haven't been getting like targets in football and the coach is like, well, we really need to get so-and-so more involved this week. And like, and like, I'm not saying that it always matters, but like there are times when it's like, well, that, that probably makes sense that they're going to try to do, they're going to try to get this guy more involved or like, Oh, this guy's injured, but like how injured is he? You know? there's also informational edge of like, you know, having access to like beat reporters and like we've built up a network of people that are, that I would call like reliable sources where, you know, we can actually get plugged into like, who's going to play, you know, who, who's not going to play. Um, you know, this information is useful, like always, but like the earlier, the better. And, and like, the, it's just the number of little things that like, it, it's not just about like looking at like, like, like major league baseball is the worst example of this. Cause it's just much more about the data but like football, basketball, there's just a little more room for nuance. And like, that's where like a, a source that can like give you trusted analysis in addition to data, I, I think really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That, that kind of informational asymmetry seems kind of bad for the game because then people that don't have an inside trusted sort, I, I don't know any beat writers when, uh, when I was football. Uh, and so if I don't, if I want to play and, and you want to play, we play the same game and we had the same model, but you know, a guy that can tell you something. I don't know, it seems Look, it's obviously fair. This is insider trading. This is DFS, but um, kind kind of a hard a hard bar to clear at for someone trying to move into mid to high stakes if they don't have those sort of sources. And but I mean that does that does actually quite clearly lead to value for people that you know purchase purchase a subscription and get to have access to that information through you guys, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I would just say you know like that's the way the world works. You know, like there's just information out there that some people are going to have and others aren't it's very important to us and it should be to anybody not to break any rules. 
and, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving you an example of one thing that we do. That I, like I would call that a very small portion of like the value that we provide, but like, yeah, I mean, ultimately there's gotta be value in the subscription for people to want to pay for it. And, and I feel very confident that like we're, we're creating value for people that subscribe. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. Much maybe, maybe, maybe I need to get in the streets. Uh, look, it's, I don't think it's worth your time. I mean, like the, that's the bottom line. I mean, you, you, I mean, I know you're saying that jokingly, but like, no, no, no. I was, there's, there's like to, to be the best at anything, like you've got to really dedicate yourself to it. And like those guys making seven figures are absolutely doing that. You know, I, I do think it's reasonable to make like mid five figures in EV, just like working pretty hard, being, you know, grinding, like doing a, putting a lot of time in and, and like that could be part time on, you know, when you have a job or when you're in school or things like that. And like, that's, you know, that's pretty good, you know? Yeah. I'm okay with mid, 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 wait, did you say five figures or six mid, figures? Mid five. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe not. I, 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 I could throw that on the side. I could throw that in the mix. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at some point. I did play a DFS one season. It was a season long one with uh, Joe Ingram who, has been kind of off the grid lately. I'm getting a little bit worried about him, but um, that's a don't want, don't want to take a dark turn here. That was a real dark turn. Are you, are, I, I, he's he's been. I mean, the audience knows what I'm talking about. It's been it's been a while, but he's really just been kind of totally off the grid. I texted him. I messaged him. He hasn't responded. It's been months. Um, oh, that's, yeah. I'm sorry to. Yeah, know if you're out there, but give us uh, give us a yeah. If anyone knows where Joey's at these days, just let me know. Um, I, I should actually give him a call and stop texting and messaging, but yeah, hope, every, hope everything's good with Joey. Obviously one of my good friends done a lot of content together over the years, but we did, we did a DFS season, um, ten, eight, five, eight, ten years ago. I can't remember how many years ago now. And I just named myself the Las Vegas auto draft. And my strategy was just let, let the computer do all of it. And I had guys just sitting out spots for weekend matches and I managed to make the playoffs, but you know, unfortunately I, I didn't. I didn't make the, I didn't win any money, but man, people probably were pretty told that when the Las Vegas auto draft has two open slots and it's DFS team and they're just getting the hammer. I don't even know who was on my team. It was just a full, full auto draft. I just punted off by their dollars, basically. Doug, you have a way of uh, needling people. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a skill. It's a real, it's a real gift. Um, I, I actually want to say one more thing about, about fantasy in particular that I think is kind of interesting. Most people just play with like their friends in a home league or, you know, could even be high stakes. Maybe it's low stakes, whatever it's very conducive to like a source, like establish the run giving, you know, th- there's a reason to, to subscribe. Like it, like online poker gets so competitive so fast. Cause like the pool gets mixed and, and like you step, you're stepping into like a really competitive player pool instantly, but like season long fantasy is going to stay like relatively soft forever. I think because most people are just real casual with it and like, they're not going to pay for stuff or they're not going to spend a lot of time on it. So there creates this dynamic where like there's a lot of people out there, even in high stakes leagues that are like, man, like it's worth paying for a trusted source. It doesn't, we put out information. It doesn't just like totally screw every fantasy league with like completely perfectly efficient, like information. And it sort of creates this, like, like this, like dynamic where there's like a incentive for the content. There's a incentive to subscribe. And I think it, it really is a nice fit. What would you say to people that say that, with established the run and card runners before maybe even hold a manager to some extent here that you're ruining the games for people and you're making everyone's life worse and you're making the games tougher and now they can't make money and you're, you're just destroying this for these people. What would you say to those people? I would say that Doug Polk's doing that better than I am. So he's the guy to go after. 
Very nice. Nicely sidestepped there. I like it. No, but I, that, it's something I've thought a lot about. And um, I'm actually curious what you think about this. If, like I said, card runners didn't ever exist and they're never, because there's not like, if you go across industries, there's not like a card runners or an upswing of every single industry where like a really, really reliable premium source of information that you just know is, they're actually really trying to be as good as they can at educating you. It's not like just bullshit really. Do you think that that would have happened in poker anyway, the same way that it did? And and I, I think that it would have because there was just a market opportunity and eventually that people go after it. But then the question is, if that's true, why isn't the same, why doesn't the same thing exist for like all forms of gambling, all trading, all forms of a lot of other activities. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so I guess there's kind of two parts here. The first part is sort of the ethics of it, and the second part is why with poker specifically. And so the ethics side is is, is interesting and and complicated. And one thing I don't like is when training sites owners try and say, guys, this is actually good for you because now people move up in stakes, and now you're going to have other people that might not be in your games, yada, yada. Uh, and that stuff can happen. That, that definitely can be a small part of it. But the reality is when you create a training site and you have thousands of members, the average player is going to become more knowledgeable. They're going to learn from better players. The games get tougher. So there's no doubt about it. It has a slightly negative impact on the average player playing in those games. But it does have a very positive impact on the people that are taking the course and trying to improve their game. So you are making the game worse for everyone and while making it much better for the people that are your members by providing the value. And that's really the point, I think, of businesses just in general is to legally provide value to your customers and yes, that's going to be at the expense of the other people in the market, but lots of other markets operate in the same way where, you know, let's just say that you're trying to become a professional athlete and there's some new way to train that makes you much stronger that people don't know about. Well, yeah, that's worse for everyone else that doesn't do it, but it's good for the people that, that use that, that source, assuming that it's legal. There are so many other examples here that exist like this in the market. So the reality is that in a capitalistic society, as long as, it, as, long as it's within the rules that we've established, Companies will exist to provide value to people, um, and we're just one another company that that does that. Um, so that would be my my kind of ethics question or response there. And then as for why poker specifically, well, what's interesting with poker is that in a lot of these in- industries, let's say for example backgammon, which I don't know very much about, but backgammon doesn't have a thriving low to mid stakes ecosystem, to my knowledge, at least not online, not in the same way. So let's just say you're the best backgammon player in the world i don't know gus hansen won a lot of money in backgammon supposedly you're not going to go hey guys i'm gus hansen what's up uh we're going to make some videos on how to play backgammon this is how you beat the saudis out of uh, 160 million in backgammon you're not getting that video doesn't make sense no one's going to buy it and it's too much money that he gives up by doing that so there is an interesting sort of incentive with poker specifically where and and dfs is is very similar where you have primarily low to mid stakes games that are running and so higher six people can actually make good money teaching because there's enough demand and then enough people can actually purchase that product and use that to gain value, capture value themselves. So um, I think that things like those two make the most sense. And then some, some other things you'd never see, for example, like chess, there's no gambling in chess. So there's not going to be this, this secondary market that I'm sure that there are training sites for chess in some capacity, I, I guess, but it's not the same because it's not B2B it's B2C. When you're a poker player or DFS player, anything like that, you are treating these purchases of subscriptions as a business. I'm a business. My business is to make money doing X thing. This this purchase makes me better at X thing. 
I make more money. My business makes more money. Whereas if you're doing something as a hobby or for fun, you're just simply never going to see that that same kind of thing. What what other gambling games did you do you have in mind when you when you said that? Sports betting. Um, and there are tools and stuff that are, I would say, from what I know, decent, but it's few and far between. It's mostly just scammy stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of other gambling games specifically. Well, what's sports betting? What's sports betting specifically? It's a weird one because if you're able to make money sports betting, there is so much volume available. You can make so much money that it doesn't make sense to give away your formula because it its effectiveness gets diluted as where people have access to it. And so the amount of money you can make just simply getting the bets down is just tremendously more than you would get doing another approach, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, that that's there's no doubt about that. Um, but sports betting also becomes a game of how do you actually get bets? Like once you're good enough to win, the harder part is like, how do you get action? And like, so there is some maybe dynamic for, a, but it's, it's not, it would make no sense to like do a mass subscription for, you know, a low cost to get people sports betting information because it's just the, the, the information would just be useless instantly and you wouldn't get enough people paying for it. Um, but um, I, I do, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I actually do think that there is even these businesses that are not helping people make money, but they're just niche. Like I think that they will spring up in like countless areas over time where, where it's not only about the information, it's about connecting to other people that are also interested in the topic. And it's also about like, Right now with like Google, like being littered with, if you're trying to find information on something, it's so hard to determine like what is actually good information. I think there's just like a huge opportunity to say like, I'm the place that you go to for like gardening or whatever. I'm sure this exists. And, you know, anyone that's enthusiastic about gardening can pay this subscription fee. You get connected to a discord, you get really good information. We're doing the work for you. And like, I just think that's like going to be a massive trend that happens. And I think like poker was just kind of like ahead of that. And and some of the other, um, yeah, poker was just ahead of that and maybe DFS and fantasy. Um, but yeah, there's just, sorry, that's total tangent, but I'm, it's something I'm interested in personally. I'd, I'd agree with that. People like to be involved in communities of like-minded individuals that are interested in some of the same things and be a part of that community. With Upswing, one of the things we've seen to be the most successful is we have a Facebook group where people can chat. And something like half of all of our members sign up for that group and are very active. That group is incredibly active and people just like to be able to talk with each other. Sometimes I get a little annoyed in there because I'll read a post and it'll say, okay, so I limp in from mid position. What the fuck, man? You bought up the lab to limp into mid position and post this hand? Yeah, but should I limp re-raise? I don't know. You go to the site that teaches you to limp re-raise from mid... Anyway, just just a tilting side note. But people enjoy being in in that community. And I think humans in general like to be part of communities... um, with like-minded individuals a good example of something recently that happened was with this pickleball wave i went i saw there was a site called pickleball central and i looked it up and i just saw the site that what they were doing and i thought oh my god i, sh- I could have done this shit because i had friends playing pickleball years ago F- fees is huge in a pickleball that that man loves some pickle and if i just thought about that i could have made something similar started a similar business and that exploded right so um you're gonna see a lot of these sort of small sub subgenres kind of explode and there's there's always gonna be an opportunity in those niche spaces yeah i'm a big pickleball fan i actually didn't even know it was exploding i didn't listen i must not have listened to like what you were talking about but like i played it in high school and like a gym class like it wasn't like a like oh, okay i was into but like 
I just remember being like, this is awesome, you know? And like, and you, you can, it's not that like strenuous to play. And like, I, I don't know what pickleball central is, but like, I'm about to find out after I get off this podcast. It, it, it's just, it's just a, a site about pickleball and they sell pickleball stuff. I mean, it, it would basically just kind of be your, your, um, let me find this on Google trends here because the, the rise of pickleball, I'm sure people in the chat or people that are listening know what I'm talking about. It has been everywhere. I have friends trying to get me into it. All of a sudden, at the same time, the entire country decided that they love pickleball. Here, let me let me show you this. I can share my screen. Up and see if I can get better with this. I'm in if you want to buy Pickleball Central and, and make a run at it, or if somebody else does, please. We're going to make a run? Nice. So here you can see United States. Oh, this is 12 months. Wait, this looks this looks kind of... Looks like it passed. Doesn't afford a present. Huh. Yeah. It's over. Pickleball is over. Oh, you're saying it's dead? I'm oh, kidding. Yeah. I mean, it looks like Maybe it's doing it. pretty well to me. Sick, sick downswing. This is basically like when Bitcoin goes from forty to thirty, and the people say, "Told you it was a scam." That's, That's right. basically what we're looking at here at Pickleball. So, you were playing it. When were you in high school, Taylor? It was ninety-nine. Was the first time I played pickleball. Oh, oh well, pre this graph. So you, you're you're basically over here playing pickleball, and then this was the run up. Yeah, big in Utah. Well, yeah, it looks like a, a Southwest uh, thing. I know it's pretty big in Florida too. Yeah, you can see, you can kind of see that. People, people love their pickleball. Anyway, so yeah, stuff like that. I think is kind of what you're saying, right? As absolutely, example. just just creating niche businesses that are focused on a topic, and it also stems from like Facebook being a cesspool and like you know p- public social media like being real mixed bag of like what you get and like finding a way to like filter out people that really don't want to be there and or trolls. And only have people that are in one spot that really like the same thing. And like, I can say with like establish the run, you know, we have a discord that you got to be paying to be in there. And like, it's awesome. Like I go in there and just like talk about fantasy football and ask questions. And like, yeah, of course the quality of the the, the discussion can vary, but like you at least know there's like some bar to clear by being in there. And like, I don't know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in that concept in the long term. Right, that that makes sense. What what other kind of spaces are are uh, tickling your fancy right now that you're starting to see that kind of opportunity? And what, what anything on the docket? Personally, I would love to be connected more with. I'm I'm a big dog enthusiast. I like dogs. Um, I just like <laughs> I like talking about dogs and like I like dogs. What's that? <laughs> he said I you're basically saying I like dogs. Yeah, I know, and it sounds. I, I was laughing because it sounds absurd to be saying this, but like just connecting more with people, especially the kind of dog that I have. Like it's a weird, it's a whippet. If anybody whippet mix, those, those are the fastest dogs, right? Yeah. And she, she's a mix and she's like part of something else too, and whatever. But like, I'm just sort of like, like oddly obsessed with how like goofy those dogs are. And like, there's this like website, like message board that I, I was reading and Facebook groups. And like, I don't know. I just would like, I would pay to be a part of a group that like, just like connected with other people that are interested in that topic. And like, I don't know. I don't think I have any other like business ideas for it, but like I, if you're interested in something and you can like roll up like other people that are interested in it, I think it's like a super, super low risk way to like to have a really nice business. Kind of makes sense because when you think about when I think when I was in high school, I remember Facebook, uh, MySpace was a thing and I was on MySpace and then Facebook was the cool thing, but you had to have a college email to get onto Facebook and everyone wanted to be on Facebook and eventually everyone was on Facebook and now Facebook sucks. Everyone hates Facebook. So you're basically paying money to not have to deal with just the average person um, and have them kind of ruin your ruin your environment. So, I mean, p- paid paid groups, yeah, I, I can definitely see that being a uh, something that 
kind of evolves as as the online space grows and as more of these large platforms kind of had everybody on them, which maybe you don't want to have everyone. Maybe you want to have just only the people that own Whippets and talk about Whippet related activity and you know fun things you can do with your Whippet and which 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 where the best parks are, how fast your Whippet is. I'm sure you could have races, all kinds of great stuff. Exactly too. And the other thing that's that's supporting all of this is there's now tools that are available to make it really easy to actually not be like a tech wizard, but, but, uh, but spin up these, these sites, like, you know, like establish the run is built on WordPress and, you know, with different, you know, um, plugins that are enabled discord is a massive, you know, at tool that can be really easily plugged into a community. And like, you can, you can even make access be paid to, to get into it. All this stuff is just enabling, you know, random Joes to do this stuff. Whereas that was not really possible like a decade ago, certainly not two decades ago, maybe not even five years ago. So like all there's, yeah, there's just every single trend I think is going in the direction of these niche businesses. And, and it's, it's, it's really cool to see. I'm in the process of, of launching a, a very niche business with uh, my fiance, Caitlin. This is, uh, I don't know if I've actually talked about this publicly before, but it's, it's her brainchild. So she really likes the, the self tanning lotions, but she likes the organic ones that are chemical free, uh, and those are just horrible. They just they bad bad consistency. They streak. They're really shitty, uh, and then even their ingredient list can be can be kind of questionable at times. So she basically went on this epic half year journey where she was in her lab coat whipping up different formulas and trying different batches. And after after six months or so, she created a pretty amazing organic self tanner. Uh, it's you, our, our ingredient list is just is just awesome. You can compare it to any of the other big self tanners. Uh, ours is by far the best, and then quality wise, ours is by far the best. The smell is by far the best. It's just it's just clearly it's just an awesome product. So we we fired off a five thousand unit order, and we're getting ready to start selling those. Uh, hopefully, after the honeymoon, we get back, we're gonna be slinging some self tanners. So um, my on one side, I love our product. On the other side, I've never done something that's kind of like this. Now I have to deal with creating a fiscal good. Now we have to go into the really competitive beauty space. So I'm just funding it and we'll see what happens. Uh, but we do have an awesome product and uh, she's done a really great job with that. So we're going to take a crack at things and, and see how it goes. That's really, really cool. Love the just random new business that you're like low key creating coming out. But two questions. First of all, are you wearing the product right now? No, this is an all-natural tan. I, I I prefer sun usually, although that's probably going to be changing in the near future. Okay, that, that's good. I was going to say you got a you got a good looking tan. So that, thank that's you. Good. And secondly, not our product. We need, we need to locate Joey Ingram because I think he would be the the right type of person to to get behind this. He would be he would be the right guy for this for sure. He he would be all on board on the natural naturally derived ingredient self tanner, uh, self tanner lotion. You you can't say chemical free because. One of the ingredients in self tanner is, so, oh man, I should get Caitlin on here. And this was before we weren't even supposed to announce yet, so this is just a little little sneak peek behind the scenes for the fans. But basically, I think naturally derived is the correct terminology. Organic, naturally derived, and uh, no, our product is awesome. The, we, we I've tried the other ones. We ours is so much better; it's ridiculous. I I kind of can't believe it. Saint Tropez is the biggest brand. They got bought out. I want to say five or six years ago for roughly a hundred million dollars. And uh, it, their share price is kind of hard to tell exactly what it is because there's a bunch of different sub brands within it. But I think it's pretty reasonable to think that that brand is four to five X over the last five years and, you know, huge industry. Also, it's kind of weird to me that people are not 
and not really trying to create more organic products in that space, you would think that there would be big brands that have really good organic products, but there's actually not in the self-tanner space. I, I, I like that people are listening to this podcast. We have a 98% male audience. I'm sure everyone is very interested in self-tanning lotions and thinking, this is, the, this is exactly what I need today, Doug. Thank you for talking about your options. And guess what? One day I'll have just the thing for you, but you're going to have to stay, stay buckled in because it's going to be a month or so until we're slinging that. But yeah, that day is coming. I like it. Make them make them sit through what you want them to sit through, Doug. That's the GTO. Edge, ed, edge of their seats, I'm sure. So uh, yeah, that's a little something kind of going on behind behind the scenes for me. Um, so going back to DFS for a little bit here, and then let's talk about some crypto stuff. Where do you kind of see DFS heading? Um, do you think that it's kind of on the business side, there's not really a lot of great opportunities there anymore? Basically, it seems like you know the, the big players have kind of been established. Um, where do you see DFS heading in the near future? Near to long yeah, future? yeah, it's it's really an interesting topic because I don't think there's a lot of consensus out there on it, at least from people I've talked to. Um, at a high level, the biggest two sites by far are DraftKings and FanDuel, and, and they're trying to run sportsbooks and, and eventually casinos as their as their main business, online casinos as their main business. And at the same time, their focus is clearly not mostly on DFS, but the amount of branding you see for these sites all over television, everywhere else is just absolutely massive, especially as compared to like a few years ago when like DFS was really like slumping in terms of like, you know, where the industry was going and, you know, credibility and everything else. Um, So I don't know. I think that like, I I sort of come down in the middle, like some people think, well, you know, everyone's just going to be betting sports and DFS is kind of going to go away. And then some people think, well, there's going to be this resurgence because it's all over television and, I think it's just somewhere in between. It's just a fundamentally different activity. I mean, like you can, where else can you put like five, 10, 20 bucks down and have a legitimate million dollar prize pool or first place prize every single weekend for football and, you know, periodically for other sports. Every gas station in the nation, right? Is that? No, I'm uh, <laughs> yeah. But that's also a skill game though. Right. And like, you know, mm-hmm. um, true. But, um, you know, where you can do it in a way that, like, realistically is plus EV if you have, like, a reasonable, like, you know, skill, skill set, which honestly is not that hard, um, or at least neutral EV, you know, and, and like, and it's fun. You know, you're going to watch football anyway. You're going to watch, you know, say the NBA playoffs anyway, whatever. Um, so from that perspective, I just, like, am, am pretty optimistic. Um, I, I, so business-wise, you know, I don't, I don't think, like, if I was, like, a new entrant or something, like, DFS would certainly not be where I'd be focusing. Um, but, like, for, from, like, my perspective and Establish the Run's perspective, like, I'm just really passionate about creating a, a brand in the sports gambling, like, niche. I know this is more fantasy sports now that is actually trustworthy. And, like, I, I think it's, like, really, really fun to, like, build something where you have a community of people that like what, like you like what you're doing. They trust you, you know, you're learning, everyone's learning. That doesn't really exist that much in sports, like in in sports gambling. And like, so that's kind of where we're headed. Just, just really trying to build like credible products, content for people that like want to be smart about this stuff. Um, So I don't know. I I will say too, this has been totally against my, my like path has always been getting this stuff early before it gets settled, kind of figure it out, make money before it's really like a settled thing. With Establish the Run, I mean, when I started the site, like a lot of people I knew were like, what are you doing? Like, why would you start a DFS content site in like 2019, you know? And like the truth was, it was just a a weird opportunity where like the guys I'm working with are like the best of the best analysts and data people that like 
I just saw an opportunity to like, to like come into a market that was already like kind of, you know, stagnant and, and, and it made sense, but that's the only thing I've ever done that. If you have a unique take on something that you can see what, where you would capture value that prior people have not, you can go in industries where it seems redundant and it looks like it's a bad play just because it's been done so many times, but you can still capture value in a unique way. I, I don't see that there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you do have to have a more interesting proposition. You can't just show up, right? If you're card runners, you could show up more. Obviously, you guys did some things right too, but in 20 years later, you can't just show up and say, hey, we're doing videos. You know, you have to have you have to have more things. It's like that with any business as it at any industry, as it matures, you have to have a, a better unique uh, value proposition to, to capture users. And, and it's, it sounds like you're, you're doing a good, good job with that there. Yeah, thanks a lot. And by the way, too, do you remember uh, we were talking this summer and you were like, I, I was like, I, we were talking about something else. And I was like, oh, yeah, thanks. Like you did our podcast, the established the wrong podcast like this fall. And, and you were like. I did. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, it's a pretty big podcast. And you're like, ah, sorry, I did a lot of podcasts. And I, but I, I was like thanking you and you had no idea. Uh, so, yeah. So, wait, wait, by the way, thank you for making me look like a dick here on my own podcast. Really appreciate that, Taylor. No, here's what happened. Okay. When I wrapped up the Negranu challenge, I went on the podcast tour because so many people wanted me to get on their podcast. So I basically just said, hey, if you have a podcast, I'll hop on it. I'll talk about my experience, everything that happened. So I did. I don't know, 10, 15 podcasts in that week or two. And I, I didn't realize that Establish the Run was, was, was your site. So, um, you know, good to learn. I know that now. Wait, and I didn't realize you, did, you didn't just think Establish the Run was a credible, great podcast. It was actually you were doing any, any podcast. I, I, I just knew Establish the Run was, was a legitimate podcast. So I just, you know, I mean, I had some standards. I didn't take every single podcast. There were some no's in there. Okay, well, I appreciate that. And I'm, I, again, sorry for calling you out here. It's okay. It, honestly, I should get called out more than I do. So let's transition to a topic that everyone's thinking, you know what, Doug, you've just never talked about CryptoPunks on this podcast. And frankly, it's about time you talk about these things. So let's talk about CryptoPunks. You've had a CryptoPunk avatar on uh, Telegram. I don't know, maybe Twitter. I don't actually know on Twitter. No. Okay. Just on Telegram for some time. CryptoPunks, where are we at with this? Because they, their value has been dropping lately. You're getting a little rattled. You're ready to sell. What's no. going on? No, I, I it, before the show we were talking and I was like, I don't know if I can say anything. I don't know what I have to say that hasn't been said. And I'm so tired of talking about it. everyone talks about crypto punks, which I think is actually one of the most bullish things you, about the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I actually, as crazy as this sounds, like I kind of think I got into that, got into them for the right reasons. Like it, it was this winter, like in January, you know, if people recall, like top NBA top shot was like super hot over the winter and I was kind of just like, what is going on with NFTs? And I started, you know, I saw there was like a few big crypto punk sales. Like at the time, like people were paying like mid six figures for like really, really elite ones. And I was just like, I have got to like figure out what this is. I didn't know a single person that owned one. I didn't, I didn't know if it was a scam. And I just started like, you know, buying them and like, just sort of like, just trying to trade up and like figure out like what it was. And I just, I don't know. And then when I started reading about it, I was like, you know, this is the first NFT project essentially on the Ethereum blockchain and, and one of the first overall. And if NFTs become big beyond just like collectibles and art and whatever, that, you know, you think about like, like the culture of something when it's like the first one, the first project, I just, I just really felt like that could be like, you know, transformative or, or sort of something that would be want desired to be owned by a lot of people. And, and also I really liked it. It was actually not totally about making money. So I got into it. I started trading them. How, how um, early did you get into it? 
Yeah, in, in like January of this year. So that, I think that I think that the like it was like five grand or something for the first one that I bought. Wow, um, man, nice job. Well so it was it was very. I did not know a single person that owned one. And I did not tell anybody I was doing it. I was just doing it because I I just do weird shit online sometimes. And like, um, you know, finally I saw a kid, a guy I know um, from poker. I, I don't I don't know if he wants his name said here, but like you know, I saw he had his avatar on Twitter, a, a punk in like February. And I DM'd him and I was like, Hey, like, can you talk to me about this? It's like, this is like, I, I need, I didn't need someone to talk to about it, you know? And like, and then, you know, we started talking and then I talked to a few other people and like, I actually only own one at this point. So I'm really, a lot of people have made far more money than I have off of them, but um, you know, I, I've done, I've done well and I'm, I'm happy for it. But um, I, I really believe in the project. Like, like the idea that somebody could come out with like a self-contained marketplace in 2017, it was given away for free back when this wasn't like a common thing to be doing. I mean, it wasn't like every project now it's like, Oh, you can claim them and they're not even free most of the time. But like, you know, that is like a really transformative idea. And then when you think, okay, well maybe NFTs evolved to having a bigger use case and, and like cultural relevance than simply just art and collectibles. And this is kind of the thing that like you could at least argue made that a lot more mainstream. I don't know. I think like you look out 10, 20, 30 years, like that this could be like a very, very like important project. And like, I think that the prices have just sort of reflected that. Um, I don't know if you have any comments on any of that. I, I, I like a, a lot of what you had to say. I, I do think it's actually, you said something that I would disagree with where you said that everyone's talking about these and that's a very bullish sign. I think it's actually kind of a bearish sign that everyone talks about these all the time and the price has not risen for some time now. And at some point, that conversation will actually die down. And how how good is that for punks in general and their values? And additionally, punk volume is extremely low right now. Very few punks are changing hands a day. And then a lot of the stuff that is happening is fake bullshit. Like, for example, that $9.5 million offer that the guy turned down because of whatever. Complete nonsense. Obviously a scam. You, you Wait, know I'm are you about, telling right? me Richard with an E didn't or wasn't scamming, was scamming people on the internet? I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, it you know, if the shoe fits, because that was clearly not turned down that yeah, offer, a real yeah. offer. So, but so you got to separate, and you know this. You got to separate the obvious. There's obvious scams in like online poker too. You can get you can get screwed, you can get cheated, but it doesn't mean that it's it's a totally rigged thing, you know. Okay, fair fair analogy, but at the same time, crypto punk value has not increased in a while. Relatively, I know I know it's gone up tremendously this year, but the last couple of it's months, tough year for us conversations dying down volume is extremely low i don't know it's people i don't know people might get a little rattled in the, in the so here's suit. what i would say to you doug i would say what do you think the volume should be of a market where the floor price is like i don't know what it is exactly let's call it four hundred thousand us dollars what do you think that a reasonable amount of like like artworks like like i'm not an art expert but like i i, I it would it would not be surprising to me that as these prices get so high, a healthy market is not changing hands constantly. Like, like that, that just seems expected to me. As, as a well, first, I, I guess. I guess. Let me let me because I see where you're going with that, and and I, I agree with the premise that when assets get this expensive, they probably shouldn't be turning over a lot. But then I would maybe counter with how many pieces of artwork that are this expensive are listed and then basically just don't sell for super long periods of time. Is that common? Well, I would say that I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would say that the vast majority of crypto punks that are listed are not listed anywhere near their real market price. They're, they're listed by people that just have absolutely no sense of what they're actually worth or 
are hoping to find a fish, which does happen from time to time. And, and I know that because I've sold them before way above current market or then market values and felt super smart. And then of course it was a terrible decision in hindsight, but um, so if you price it right now, I'm going to separate the, the fact that there are, you know, quote unquote bear markets, there's lulls in the market, whatever. But normally if you price a punk at the right price, like an actual fair price, it will sell pretty quickly. And like, that's not always true, but I think that's more true than most people probably believe. Okay. Interesting way of looking at it. I, I do think that if ETH, if the price of crypto punks breaks a hundred, I think that it's pretty likely to fall. I feel like there's pretty strong support at a hundred. It seems every, whenever it seems to break a hundred, it seems to kind of get back there. I wouldn't be that surprised if it actually was really to break a hundred ETH and go under to see it, to kind of see prices drop. You know, truth, essentially. I don't really have too much of a comment on that. You could be right. I don't have an opinion, but like, I would say my biggest concern long-term would be two things. One, if the price of Ethereum just gets so high that like, you know, you'd almost just be better off holding it as opposed to like holding something that's denominated in it because eventually, you know, (laughs) US dollar or the equivalent matters, you know, there needs to be people coming into the market that are, because there are people that are coming in buying punks that are not crypto people, which is, I I would say the same cannot be said about a lot of the NFT stuff. Good point, yeah. Super bullish in in my opinion. Um, So long, long term, that's kind of my biggest, I guess, fear. Um, I would also say too, something happening where Ethereum just either isn't considered important or it doesn't really matter. That probably is, is pretty darn bad. Um, but I, I really can't assess that. Um, and, yeah. and I would say too, Doug, I mean, my, my question for you is what would happen? What would you do if the price of punks dropped by 50% or, or more? What, is there a price where you would, where you would buy one? I'd have to think about it. I actually, I am no longer as a no punker. I'm a, I'm a part punker. Um, and you could tell because I bought the actually all time high and I, I, I basically was doing something with a buddy and he decided to buy a punk and I got a piece of it. And so, you know, I got in there the all time high pretty much. So you can just kind of, whatever the graph is, but Doug bought here. And then, so I, at this point I kind of want to drop just so that I can feel the pain of the loss that I knew I would one day take. Uh, I just want to see that that destiny become a reality. Um, sorry, I was too prepared to troll there for to actually answer a question what what was so would i buy if it dropped in half i would probably start to look for bum hunt spots yeah i would look for individual ones because like you said before most of them are just priced way too high i think a lot of the floor ones are almost always priced reasonably it's hard to it's hard to if you post near the floor it's hard to have it be too unreasonably priced unless it's a particularly terrible one but the market seems pretty savvy with punks. People understand the traits that are more valuable and more desirable pretty well. And maybe some traits seem to, to kind of come and go as a little bit more or less valuable. But um, the market seems to do a, a pretty decent job of deciding some of the, these things. Some of the ones that stick out to me, for example, the purple cap punks. I would have thought the purple cap would be more valuable than I, I guess it is on the market. Because um, I think the purple cap is pretty cool than compared to the you know blue bandana or the kind of gray cap or, what, or gray was it skull cap or whatever it would be? I don't know what, what the trait's called. Um, I'm not, I'm not deep enough to know all the traits, man. There's but, a forward cap. There's a, there's a few other ones that kind of look like some sort of head headwear, I guess you could call it that are like, that are shaved head. There's things that's not a cap, but like things that are like traits that are not, not considered valuable that are on someone's head. Right. I mean, some of them make sense. No one wants the dumb Mohawk. That's just straight. And then even the side Mohawk, not very val- very valuable. 
people don't like my hair much either on there. The peak spike. Peak spike. Uh, I mean, Doug, the peak spike frown, I, I actually saw the other day that it was on the market. Uh, I think that's got to be – I can't imagine a world where if punks go down a lot, you don't own that punk. Like, how, how could you not own that? Look, if if I was ever considering it, I couldn't say so publicly because I can't have people bum hunt me specifically by putting excessive price on there. So let's just leave it at I'm not going to buy one no matter what. And then if it happens to one day make sense, maybe I will. Uh, I, I don't know. I, let me let me say this about just NFTs in general. So NFTs are funny because I get I get it. I understand that people like these and it's a huge space and stuff. But I personally just hate art straight up. I just don't like art. I'm not into art. I don't get it. I look at art. And I think I think all art's kind of a scam. So these are fit right in. I I just I just dislike art. I don't feel stuff from art. I look at art pieces of artwork. I think, yep, that's some art. I don't. I'm maybe I'm just too analytical. Was it left brained where it just doesn't it doesn't trigger emotions and the, the piece is about and I don't get it. They mean nothing to me. I don't even particularly like them very much. But that doesn't mean other people can't like them. And I understand that a lot of people do. So. I'm caught in this. I'm, you know, I'm definitely willing to invest in things that I think will make me money, but I'm not going to like it, kind of no matter what. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a funny, funny situation as an investor. Do you actually like NFTs? Um, no, um, I, I like CryptoPunks a lot. I really, really enjoy it. I don't really know exactly why. Um, I've tried to explain some of my thought process here. I just think it's really interesting and really, it's like almost a provocative idea that it just exists. Um, you know, that it people are really willing to pay this amount of money for something that's this absurd. And, and um, art in general, I think it's cool. I mean, I think there's some stuff that I look at it and I'm like, wow, like that looks really neat or interesting, but like, I just don't know enough about it to like have it to like assign value to it. And I'm not really, it's not how I want to spend my time, like kind of like speculating on it. Um, but I, I, I think that like, NFTs, I just, yeah, I don't know. I can't really add too much to what you just said. I, I'm not an art guy, but like, I do think there's like something there broadly. And, and like, I'm just not willing to spe- interested in speculating on like the broader market. Okay. That's fair enough. That's probably enough crypto punks for right now. What are, what other uh, cryptocurrency stuff are you either invested in or you think is promising or, you know, I'm sure your bags. Yeah. No, nothing that's, I mean, and nobody has, has, Heard everyone's heard everything I have to say. I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think there's absolutely nothing I have to add to the to the discussion. I'm not an expert by any means in any of this stuff. I just thank God, like I just eventually like listened to people that I thought were smart and kind of held and didn't didn't do a whole lot. Bought some dips, like things like that. I'm, I'm but I'm far from like the most you know sophisticated or or. Uh, wealthy crypto crypto guy. I will. It's, it's really interesting though, seeing this run up in the market and seeing how so many former like poker players, current or former poker players, gamblers are just really, really wealthy now, like through crypto and like, and, and also other sort of like, you know, misfit type people, kind of early adopters. I've always wanted to ask some other people like how they, someone like you, like, how do you think that plays out? I mean, like, there's just some people that are, have so much money now from crypto and presumably it keeps going up or maybe it does. What, what effect does that have on the world? And, or like, doesn't that just kind of blow your mind thinking back to like some of these people that were like grinding low stakes poker are now just like super insanely wealthy. It is a crazy run up and it's a, it's been a really once in a lifetime kind of opportunity to get involved in here earlier or in here early and poker was 
sort of a funny crossover because you had to be willing to take risk and then you also had to not want money in banks and i can't think of people that would like that combo better than poker players so it is interesting seeing how much money everyone has i mean you just look around the people that you know from back in the day and just kind of how much money they made in poker compared to crypto it can be outrageously different and way less difficult and usually less stressful especially if when it goes down you're just not concerned with it because you you believe in the long term uh, the long-term vision what what kind of blows my mind is you still have all of these detractors that are on firmly feet planted on the it's a scam it's going to zero it's going to lose money burr, burr, burr. Uh, don't tell people to buy this that's irresponsible you know how, how many more years of this are we going to have to do before people realize oh maybe this was actually a a, a good idea or is bitcoin going to be a million dollars and we're still going to have the same guys go, don't invest to scam. Yeah, okay. It was it was a hundred dollars fifteen years ago, dude. Twenty years ago. I mean, at some point, can we just recognize that? Yes, it's different than dollars that your government prints, but you know that's kind of a scam. And in fact, I would agree, argue that's a much bigger scam than this one. Yeah, I mean, I can't answer that. I, I it's certainly. I just wonder if we're just going to talk about is crypto a scam forever, and like that's going to be something I'm going to like be talking to my kids about someday, and like. I just like, I, I'm not here for that. You know, like I, I just wanted to at some point just be like, Hey, it's a thing. And like, some people are into it. Some people aren't. And, and frankly, I hope that it actually does transform society in a positive way, which I think has not happened yet, but ha- or at least broadly, but could very much happen with the proliferation of, of the technology and the, and, and like, you know, more user adoption and stuff like that. So that's the part that I'm kind of here for m- m- more, and hoping that like there's like tangible things where like because because there is a reasonable argument to be made of like well what is the point of me holding this I can't really do anything with Bitcoin and that that is kind of the point though and of course at some point in time people were saying well you know it'll it can evolve and it can be like a currency and like that's sort of just like people stopped saying that and they're like well you used to say this and now it's just digital gold and it's like well yeah that, I did used to say that but you know so there is there are like points to be made you know but for sure so, I, I think. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. no, go ahead. I was going to say that the, the anti-Bitcoin points are actually, they're different, but th- there are some good ones that can can be made. For example, when I got into Bitcoin, people would talk about, can you imagine paying $25 for a wire? Well, that's a scam. That That's outrageous that they're doing that to you. They're stealing your money. And then not as much anymore with, with Lightning, but there were definitely points where Bitcoin, when the network was super clogged, it would cost you $10, $15, $20, $25 to send money. And all of a sudden, well, no, no, it's because it's a good store of value. Well, you know, we've obviously changed changed things a little bit now. And I think Bitcoin compared to other currencies, a lot of the Bitcoin maxis will talk about how it needs to be, Bitcoin's perfect, all these other things, no one really wants them. Well, people do want things like DeFi. People do want to be able to exchange currencies. People do want to be able to lend their money or borrow money or, or basically do all these different types of activities. People want those options and Bitcoin does not allow you to do that. And so you can't just say, oh, no one wants that and it goes away. Those are real problems that Bitcoin doesn't have that the other coins do have. I actually heard an interesting idea. I was listening to the Up Only podcast, um, which is a which is a good crypto podcast, where they were talking about um Ari Paul was on, and they were talking about Bitcoin and some of the, its shortcomings. And you know, Bitcoin could in theory just launch Ethereum on Bitcoin as a layer two or however they want to do it. And then you could you could take advantage of the network Ethereum is built on Bitcoin. But then the Bitcoin and this is what Ari Paul's point was, Bitcoin people have kind of boxed themselves into saying those things don't matter. And so we don't need those because they don't matter and you shouldn't want them. Well, they do matter. So 
I do think that there's a little bit of this tribalism within Bitcoin where it's Bitcoin only, Bitcoin's the best, we don't need any of this crap, they're all scams, all coins are, are terrible, we hate Ethereum, all this stuff. But um, I like the point that you're making here, which is there, there's a lot of value in these different aspects of cryptocurrencies that will be fulfilled. And it is interesting to see which ones will help fulfill certain you know, things like stable coins where now you can peg it to the dollar or, or different smart contract platforms or even some of the uh, exchange tokens where the, the value is certainly de- debatable. But um, it'll be interesting to see all the different ways that cryptocurrency is used to provide value in the marketplace. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I think you can always look at stuff with like a glass half full or half empty, you know, approach. And I, I try to take a, 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 t- a stance of optimism like this. This can really be good for society. And I, th- I think it really, I really, it really could on the flip side, I'm, it's not my main thing. So like, I always, you know, if I, hindsight's 2020, but like probably should have just never sold anything, you know, probably, probably should have paid more attention to crypto, all that yeah. stuff. But like, so I think the hard part is that as a casual, I'm probably more than casual, but like, I'm not the, the most in, into it. It's really hard to stay on top of all the narratives and all the new stuff. And like, so I've had to sort of just take the, te- the approach of like, Hey, I've got a certain amount that I'm going to just like, if my, if it gets too big a percentage of my net worth, I'm just going to sell it off. I'm never going to like, I'm never going to be one of those guys that has like, you know, 90% of my net worth in crypto, which kind of wish I did, but like that, that's for me, that's what works is just being, being interested, being optimistic, trying new things. And, and maybe most importantly, listening to people that I think are smart and, and just like uh, following along. Um, but it's cool. It's, it's really cool to see. I think, I think I've had a very similar approach to you and I've had friends that took a much more aggressive, just, put it all on the line kind of approach with crypto that uh, obviously panned out in a huge way. Uh, I've always had the approach of just trying to make money in a lot of different ways and not put myself where one thing going badly is going to really hammer my overall success. Uh, and it is easy to look back and say, well, should have just gone all in Bitcoin. But I look at it on the other hand, kind of like this, which is of all the plays that I made, my biggest individual play was Bitcoin. So yeah, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't enough or maybe it would have gone way better if I had been a much larger allocation. But in a world where, let's just say someone attacked the network or there was some kind of 51% attack in the early days or um, it got banned in all these major countries or whatever, it, it, there are worlds where it doesn't go the way that it did. And in those worlds, I'm still fine. Uh, I'm okay with that, even though that makes me tremendously less rich than the people that when I found Bitcoin just went all in. Um that's fine. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm, my goal also it, it kind of comes down to personal goals. I'm not trying to be the richest person I possibly could be. I'm not. I'm not really interested in that. I want to be successful. I, I want to obviously have a good life. All those kinds of things. Um, but I don't need to have a billion dollars one day to be happy. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm content to to just live my life and and have have a nice life without chasing those those kinds of goals. So if you're the kind of guy that's looking for just to be successful in general and have a good life and never be poor that's a good approach but if you're trying to you know one day be as rich as possible then yeah it was probably a dumb move to not just go all in on the thing that looked like it could possibly 10 20 50 100x that was probably your spot right yeah no i feel pretty much exactly the same way i don't think i could have said it any better myself um i I just you know personally feel really fortunate to have gotten lucky early in my life like when i played online poker at a young age like and I, i think you fall into the same boat like like to get the chance to even have like some money at a young age and then the shot to even like ride the wave of crypto or DFS or anything else. Most people don't get that shot, you know, and they don't really realistically get the the, the chance to like, you know, 
get some real money into play until they're, you know, in their thirties or forties or, or older or never. And so I, I just sort of was like, you know, I, my mindset is just, I don't want to mess this up and like, I'm never going to go broke, but I'm also going to always know people, a lot of people that are a lot richer than me. And, you know, I'm cool with that. We're, we're not so different. You and I, we've done a lot of the same things here. Heads up versus anyone training sites. Yeah, no, I, you're, you're a rich man's version of me, dog. Like for sure. Like I, you be, better hair, be, better. <laughs> I don't know. Better uh, everything, better content. You know, I will say one thing I've always wanted to give you props on is like, I think it's underappreciated by people in poker and in general. The, there's like the soft skill aspect of like business and content where you kind of have to like put yourself in the shoes of the audience. You have to think about what they want, what would, what's also going to be commercially viable you know, blending the interests of all people involved. And I think in general, like poker players tend to be like pretty terrible at that. Like the, 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 the best online players at least are just more like kind of just better at like math and solving a game and like not really thinking about, I don't want to say feelings and emotions, but like it is a little more of a soft side to it. And I think you've always, your content is just, it's hilarious and it's fun, but it's also informative. You know, it's like, it's, it's hard to do that. And, and, and like, I have a little bit of that with like what the businesses I've created not so much me being the person, but sort of me being behind the scenes. And you, I think you deserve a lot of props for, for being able to pull that off. Appreciate that. I do think that the upper echelon of poker players, some weird dudes, a lot of weird dudes, great, smart dudes, sm- very smart dudes, brilliant dudes, weird dudes. So <laughs> compared, compared to that bar, not too difficult. And as far as the, the content stuff goes, I never really saw myself getting involved in content in any capacity it just kind of dawned on me i had to do it for upswing i need to be the sort of marketing arm and a lot of that was just getting to work with seriously serious he's obviously extremely smart very funny uh great editor and uh you know kind of just surrounding yourself with people that are also funny to hash out ideas and talk about things and kind of find your style and i think that a big part of the the content over the years the reason that it it, it did well and people enjoyed it and it was funny was that we, we sort of found our style we kind of knew where we did our best work and uh, we weren't afraid to, to hammer on scammers, which is really the the bread and butter. Dunking on idiots is just it's just always going to be good. That's you can go to that well as many times as you want to go to it. When you find idiots to dunk on, that that's going to be some of the the most funny stuff you can do. And then there was the informative side too. I think a lot of people watched my content to kind of learn how to play poker or you know maybe basic ideas in crypto or whatever it is. So there was a lot of that as well, but. Uh, the most funny stuff was the making fun of Ty Lopez or the BitConnect guys or Alex Torelli or Charlie Carroll or who th- those are the best. Mo- I mean, those are the moments where th- those are the great moments. I mean, I, I would say it makes it all worth it when you get to, you know, punch down on some some real uh, scumbags. Um, you you know, it, it it is a little bit weird on that subject, just the kind of punching up versus punching down. And basically, when I started, I never had to worry about punching down because i was just kind of nobody i didn't have any audience and i could make fun of whoever and didn't matter because i was always punching up because anyone i would be talking about had a bigger following than me and then as you build a following then you start to get into territory is this too much can i make fun of this person or will it have a negative impact on them and then you start to have all the, this weight of what does it mean to say these things and what kind of effect will have in that person's life to say these things and you have to kind of think about like is it fair to them to do this and it, it does start to take away from your ability to just kind of be funny and, and joke about people and what and, and what happens in, in the context of conversation when you have to think about what's the repercussion of this. A- am I justified in what I'm saying? Is it fair? Um, 
you have to do more of that as you build an audience. And, and that's, that's a really hard line to walk. Yeah, dude, I totally understand on a smaller level um, as a, as a poor man's you at like, I, like when I was like a poker pro and like a sponsored pro and like, this is before like social media is what it is now. So like it was, it was still a different ball game, but like, I grew to hate the fact that like people knew who I was. And like, that's, I, this is like, I've hardly ever done any podcasts. Honestly, I sort of just dropped off the map in poker and by, by design, I didn't, I didn't want to be on the map. And like, I just, I didn't like that. I was, you know, I'd go into a poker room and people would know who I was. I, I, you know, online, I, I, I got recognized like in, you know, bars and restaurants and stuff. I wasn't that famous, but like people that played poker knew who I was. And like, I just didn't like that at all. And like, especially with social media. And I used to, you know, I used to tweet a lot and like, I really liked kind of like sharing my ideas and like, and like talking to people, but I did not like being like, well, shit, like if I say the wrong thing, like this is like before people got canceled, but like, it was the idea of like that, you know, I just was like, I don't know, man, is this, is the juice worth the squeeze with like my, myself. And now it's, it's actually really nice because nobody cares about me anymore. And like a lot of the, no, I'm like dead serious. Like a lot of the like old school people that are actually tend to, that be doing pretty well for themselves these days and like in poker or crypto or whatever, I think kind of respect me and know me. And like, I can certainly get the time of day if, if, if like I'd like to, and you know, but, but like the average person has no, does just not give a damn about what I'm doing. So um, I don't know. It's something to think about. I'm curious because when I talked to you a couple of years ago, it's not, you were at like a real crossroads. It seemed like with content and poker and crypto and all this stuff. And how do you see yourself like evolving, you know, with kind of the weight of all that stuff as you, as you get older? Well, one of the things that I've tried to change as I've gotten older is make more content that I actually enjoy making, which is having people like you come on here and talk about subjects that I'm interested in or I, I, I want to talk about or I think are important to talk about and and have a conversation that I think is more authentic with who I am and, and what I'm interested in. Because I just I reached a point where I just couldn't I couldn't do another Pocket Jacks video. I just couldn't do it. I just can't I just can't talk about Pocket Jacks anymore. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people love it when I talk about Pocket Jacks. I don't know. Someone else can tell you to call raise or fold in the turn. It's not going to be me anymore. I it's hard to even imagine me doing that. And I just didn't like it. You know, I, I'm still going to get in on upswing every now and then teach upper level concepts, but the base level poker hands type stuff, guys, I'm not interested in that. And I've done it for years and I just, I just don't think that it's authentic to who I am anymore. So I think that the first step was kind of just picking content types that I actually wanted to make that I enjoy making that are authentic to, to who I am. Um, and then I, I think as far as the, the dealing with with people knowing who who you are and stuff, it's it's a certain it's certainly a trade off because on one hand, um, at first it, it is really cool you go place people know who you are, but then over time you have to deal with a lot more of that. What's nice about me is I am really a D list celebrity, and if I go to a poker room, boom, everyone knows who I am, and I can get the experience of being well known. But then I go to the coffee shop. And I'm just Doug. I'm just some random guy. It's not like I have to deal with that everywhere. Actually, famous people don't get the luxury of just kind of being able to step in and step out. And in that way, it's kind of nice. I can step into areas where I am well-known, and then I could leave, and then I'm just a regular human being in society. Obviously, every now and then you get recognized um, for, for whatever, but but that that's that's not that bad, I don't, I don't think, having to deal with that. So I, I don't really mind that aspect of it nearly as much as I think you did. Yeah, I think that sounds that sounds about right. And I, I to me, I think the sweet spot is like, or at least for me in my life, is not being is being an anonymous dude. But like, if somebody like Google's you or or like you tell them what you've done, it's pretty instantly obvious to them that like you're credible. And like, I think there's a lot of value in that. And then the the other thing is too, 
like with with like you, I'm sure are getting constantly like deal flow just for like investments or opportunities. And I'm sure most of it sucks, but some of it is like legit good stuff. And like I've had times in the past where just being who I was in poker or just in the industry, like has made me a lot of money. It just, just, just Frank. And, and like, that doesn't happen as much anymore because I'm just kind of behind the scenes. And like, you know, there are, there is a contingent of people that definitely still respect my opinion and probably would, you know, cut me in on certain things, but like not to the scale that I'm sure someone like you sees it. So you just have to find yeah. that balance, you know, for sure. I mean, for example, recently I tweeted saying I'm probably gonna start a card room in Austin and basically the majority of card rooms here reached out to me in some capacity to either meet up with me or talk about what they're doing. And then what I merge with them or I do my own thing. Um, and so you kind of just instantly get to the front line of this business where otherwise I would just wouldn't have a clue what I'm doing. I just get that because of the the brand I managed to build up. So yeah, you get a bunch of advantages like that. It's kind of the upside, um, but you have to put in a, a lot of work and time to, to build that. And you kind of have to carve out your own space. I mean, I think like, I think in poker, one thing that is weird about poker is that people don't, people have very few people in poker as a personality in poker talk about kind of the news as sort of a reporter slash, I don't know, host, however you want to look at it. You have lots of poker players and that's probably the most popular genre as people playing poker, talking about them playing poker, but not many people that actually would talk about the news in poker and their thoughts on it and, and that kind of angle, which was sort of my own spin on it. I think one of my first YouTube videos, I was doing poker news where I would talk about, oh, by the way, you know, there's a site called Polker, Polker or something. And they're just full writing it. It's on Polkadot, on in the cryptocurrency Polkadot. And they call themselves Polker. And everyone's confused. And I get messages. Hey, are you with this company? No, I'm not. And oh, we're on Polkadot. Those motherfuckers know. They know they're using my name and my likeness, basically. I have to have a talk with Polkadot. Polkadot, if you're listening, reach out to me because you're the good people are confused. I am not part of Polkadot, Polka, Polker, whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Hey man, co- code is law, right? Or what do they say? Like it's a uh, it, it, crypto world. The, the rules don't apply. You know, you can just scam people, and it is what it is. Great, and it'll have my name on it. So that's always good. Uh, Taylor, that's that's kind of all I got uh, got here for you. Was there anything you want to promote? What you're up to, or where people can find you? That maybe if people are interested in what you're up to, they can follow you. Follow you if you want them following you. I don't want people to to be to be following you around too much. You know, they might know where you are, who you are, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not interesting enough to, to, to do anything more than maybe, maybe give me a follow on Twitter, which is just my name, Taylor KB, but, but yeah, no, you can, my DMS are open. You can always reach out if I may or may not reply, but um, yeah, I, I totally, uh, you know, appreciate you having me on. And, and honestly, a lot of people that have listened, I'm sure were members of card runners or, you know, we didn't talk about holding manager and poker tracker, but um, you know, I've been involved in so poker software training, DFS, you know, establish the run. Anyone that's out there that's been supported one of those businesses, like super appreciative of that. And uh, you know, uh, tons of people in poker that I know and, and 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 like. So, you know, thanks for the support over the years and uh thanks for watching. Yeah, we didn't actually even talk about holding manager or poker tracker or the sale two plus two. I had all those as topics, but we just kind of, you know kind of ran through other things and uh yeah that's yeah. Uh, yeah, all right maybe maybe some other time or maybe we can just shoot the shit privately we got we got something in the tank for future anyway thank you for joining taylor i appreciate you coming on and thank you guys for listening and tuning in today as always i appreciate that make sure to hit the subscribe button and follow this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts itunes spotify i hope we're on all of them because i hire people to do that and so it should be there follow me in those locations or on youtube or on twitch or on facebook we're on everything guys we're everywhere so 
Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to follow. And we will be back next week with the CEO of CoinFlex. Mark Lamb will be joining us to talk about our Americans getting left behind. It'll be a, a cryptocurrency themed discussion for sure. And then that will be my last one until I go on vacation. So thank you guys again for tuning in and I'll see you again soon.